time to turn off your brain and turn on your ears and your private parts because it's time for Tennis Podcast. My name is Nick. This is the show where every week either myself or my sidekick host bring a top tennis list on anything and everything. And the other person doesn't know what that list is ahead of time. They try to guess items 1 through 10-ish in real time along with you, the folks at home. Tennis Podcast, of course, is proudly brought to you by the Blue Wire Podcast Network. But not brought to you by the Blue Wire Podcast Network is my sidekick host, Anna Keller. Anna, how are you doing? I'm great, Nick. How are you doing? I'm all right. I've been better. I've been worse. I'm all right. That kind of describes, <laughs> I think, where everyone's at right now, in fairness. <laughs> yes, right. But I'm talking to the right person, at least, from what I hear. Talk about how I feel. Because Anna is a professional counselor. You can't afford me, Nick. <laughs> I'll bet you're right. But we're going to try to get there. <laughs> on this show. <laughs> Anna is a counselor, but more importantly, at least to me, she is co-host of the <laughs> Freudian Sips podcast, a podcast about brains, beverages, and other BS. There's something very unique about your podcast, but I'll get to that in a minute. Anna, I hope you can tell the listeners a little more about you and your podcast. Let them get to know you a little bit. Yeah. Um, so, like you said, I am a counselor. I'm a private practitioner in the state of Illinois, so I have um, my own practice I do the podcast, Freudian Sips, with my mom, um, Bonnie, who is awesome. She might be cooler than me, but don't tell her that I said that. But she and I got our uh, degrees together, our psychology grad school master's degrees together. So we decided that we love talking about brains and stuff. And we started a podcast to do just that and have some drinks while we do it. We just released our 100th episode. So that's pretty exciting. So Congrats. yeah, we have a lot of fun. Thank you. You mentioned there the thing that I said was super unique about your pod, which is a mother-daughter duo. You don't hear about that too often in podcasting and Bonnie's great. I've listened to you before, but this week I listened to your Van Gogh episode, oh, uh, which was fun. really cool. Yeah. And Bonnie's just like a cool mom, but... She is the coolest mom. She really is. <laughs> yeah, she is. And it stands out to me because I can't imagine doing a podcast with my mother. <laughs> we always joke that we have way too close of a relationship. If someone told me, Nick... If you don't have a choice. Your next sidekick host <laughs> is your mother. You'd be like, I'm quitting podcasting forever. <laughs> I would walk into incoming traffic. <laughs> but it's awesome that you can do that with your mom. Uh, although I will say if I, if I had to podcast with one of my parents, my mom would definitely probably be the better pick than my dad, but we don't need to go down that road. <laughs> I'm thrilled to have you on here because you're smart and you talk about the brain and you talk about psychology. And so I know, I hope that you're going to have a uh, brain-ish topic for me to guess today. Brain-ish is certainly smart. a way I would describe it. Yeah, it's, it's smart-ish. Yeah. It's very, um, there, it gets a little gruesome at parts. It gets a little, a little squicky at parts. So Excellent. maybe a little trigger warning, Excellent. but I did want to make it kind of spicy and interesting. So Of course. The anticipation is killing me. Tell me, please, what I'm guessing today. What I've brought for you today, Nick, is the top 10-ish most influential but weird psychology experiments. Oh, <laughs> now this, this is something I want to talk more about. It's a good thing you're here to tell me about it. <laughs> I was going to say, what would you do if I wasn't here? You would just be sitting here wanting to talk about <laughs> psychology experiments and you wouldn't have anything. Anna, tell me about this list. Well, uh, so I, I'm curious to know... 
like you kind of had a, a measured reaction. Do you think you will know anything on this list? Hmm. Like when I say psychology experiments, do you have some that pop to mind? Like, yeah, I've heard about that one. Uh, there are at least two that have come okay. immediately to mind. Oh, and I'm good. sure as we talk, more will come to mind. That's I'm a hoping. solid 20% on any test. And that, yeah, that's a great score. It's about as good as I did in high school. So I'll take that. <laughs> That's why I'm the one with a master's degree on this call. <laughs> I did cheat in my high school psychology class for the record. Oh, you took a high school psychology class. Okay. So you've got sure some, did, yeah, yeah you've, you've taken a little bit. That's good. You've got a background yeah. in psychology, Nick. <laughs> hey, I'm going to put it on my resume. <laughs> okay. So I, I can give you some, most of these are kind of older because back before ethics boards were a thing, people could just do whatever the hell they wanted in psychology and researching. So we kind of have... Ethics boards, more like boring boards, am I right? That's exactly correct. Fun haters. That is their second name. Like that's their subtitle when you go to an ethics board. They're like, welcome to the ethics board. And also we're the boring board. (laughs) Well, you would know. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I get called before ethics boards so often, dude. We can jump right in, but before we do, just give me, uh, are there any like guardrails I need to stay between? Like, for example, it doesn't go any earlier than such and such year or... I mean, they're all in the 1900s. Okay. We're not going before that century. Is there a source for this list? Did you make this list yourself? Tell me how the list was curated. I kind of cobbled it together from my brain and from other links and other sources the online degree guide for psychology has a list of 20 unethical experiments, and that's where I got several of them. But I've also, like, Mom and I have talked about some of them on our show, too. So, right. again, we kind of, I kind of cobbled it together and put them in an order that I think is the most, like, I kind of scored them on a bit of a matrix of influence and weirdness, both. That was going to be my next question is like, what determines the ranking? Mm-hmm. Like, what's number one? And, that, and you're saying that that's based on your uh, expert opinion on which had the most influence, but also the weirdest. My semi-expert opinion on what is weird and also influential, yes. Yeah. Also, I love that you were just talking and casually mentioning mom as like your co-host. I'm still not over that. It's just fascinating yeah. to me. <laughs> Like you yeah, don't, I don't call her Bonnie. Her. Yeah. I just call her mom. <laughs> yeah. Do you think Bonnie will listen to this? Probably because she knows I'm on it. Yeah. All right. Well, hi, Bonnie. Hi, mom. <laughs> hi, mom. Nick's, Nick's your son now, too. You're my too. favorite on the show. Yeah. You're my favorite <laughs> on the show, too, mom. <laughs> All right. Okay. Anything else I should know before I correctly guess all 10 in a row? No, I think those are the only guardrails. Throw the first gutter ball, dude. Yeah, first gutter ball. I think you're right. So the more you were talking there, the less sure I am about those experiments that came to mind because the experiments that came to mind for me, I don't think would be considered super weird or unethical. The first one I thought of was Pavlov's dogs. Oh my God, Nicholas, you got the first one on the list. Oh, you're kidding me. You <laughs> I guess jackass. it is kind of weird. <laughs> When you really think, like we're all so used to hearing about Pavlov's dogs, but when you really take a step back and look at it objectively, it is a pretty fucking oh. weird experiment. <laughs> and it gets weirder. The The details are a little weird. But yeah, I put that as the hot number one on the list because nice. in terms of behavioral psychology, when we think of Pavlov's experiments, um, which I will get into in a second, yeah. it really brought about a lot of understanding on how responses are formed 
on um, how things are conditioned. So it was a huge breakthrough in behaviorism, and it still has a lot of implications to this day. So I kind of put it on the top mm-hmm. spot because it is the most influential. It's not the weirdest, but it's, it's still pretty weird. I'll bet it's not the weirdest we talk about, but when you consider we're also talking influence, it's hard mm-hmm. for me, you know, not that I am an expert, but from my outside point of view, it's hard to imagine many experiments being more influential because this is an experiment that the average person can name, even though they exactly. never took a psychology course. Exactly. It's, it's something that is so in the cultural lexicon, like, you know, it's like the, oh, does that ring a bell? Ha ha ha, that old, <laughs> that old chestnut. And so, yeah, people know Pavlov and they know vaguely what was going on. But can I tell you, can I tell you just how weird it gets? Yes, but real quick, what is Pavlov's first name? Was it Roger? Ivan. Ivan. It, <laughs> are you going to guess? Wait, why do you think it's Roger? <laughs> I just threw out a name. Okay. Ivan. Roger Pavlov. He was born in <laughs> Russia, so I really wish his name was Roger. Yeah. We can call him Roger, but. Sure. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Tell me about how weird this is. So Ivan Pavlov himself, he was, like I said, born in Russia. He was the oldest of 11 children. Oh, my God. But he couldn't start school. I know. That was just how they did it in Russia, I guess. Oh, can we be talking about Russia? Ooh, it's a little bit of a sensitive subject no. right now. This is way back before all the, all the crap that's going on now. Mm-hmm. But he, uh, he started school a little late because of an injury, but one thing led to another. He ended up in veterinarian school studying the digestion of dogs. Hmm. He actually perfected a method of keeping an exteriorized section of the stomach on dogs, which became known as a Pavlov pouch. That was how well he perfected it. He kept a pa- Hang on. My head was spinning while you were saying that, so I want to make sure I heard that right. Yeah. An external stomach pouch? He created a method, yeah, because they were studying the digestion, so they needed a section of the stomach that they could see. So he perfected a way to keep a section of the stomach on the outside of the dog so they could observe it while they researched. How the fuck does that happen? You can't even put a bandage on a dog without the dog ripping it Dude, off. Dude, that's why he got it named after him. That's why they call it the Pavlov pouch. It was revolutionary. I am fascinated as fuck about the Pavlov pouch. Mm-hmm. Already, right? <laughs> so, so we've got the Pavlov pouch that was in Germany. He goes back to Russia to continue investigating the gastric function of dogs and later homeless children. Yes, uh, that's right. He experimented on homeless children too. Yeah, but who hasn't? <laughs> I know, right? Just add that to the list. (laughs) He did this by externalizing. He was just really big into like taking things on the inside of dogs and putting them on the Mm. outside of dogs. Because he did this, he he studied the gastric function of dogs by externalizing a salivary gland. So there's these pictures of these dogs with these little vials hanging off the side of their face where the saliva would collect so they could test it. And he wanted to analyze the saliva and what response it had to food under different conditions. So he was never studying behavior. He was never studying reactions or conditioning. He was really studying the chemical composition of saliva. That's just, you, I mean, you could stop there and not say anything else. That's fucking weird. Oh, I'm not going to do that. You wish I would stop there. <laughs> I do. <laughs> so during this, these dogs are strapped into harnesses, suspended, and a good old Ivan starts to notice that the dogs are salivating before the food actually gets to them. And do you want to know what he called this this phenomenon? So if the pa- if the stomach thing is called the Pavlov pouch, then this is called the mm-hmm. Pavlov pooch. I don't know. <laughs> what is it? 
uh, he called it a psychic secretion. Nope. Because it would happen before the food would get there. So he's like, oh, the dogs must be psychic because that's how they're salivating. Oh, what an idiot. I thought he was supposed to be smart. I know. Yeah. I know. No, he was he was a, a genius. He just loved, you know, taking things out of dogs, putting them on the outside. He did, of dogs. yeah. There's like three or four things you've mentioned in two minutes that involved things I being know. taken outside of dogs. It was his favorite thing. I think that's actually why he went to vet school. <laughs> he wanted to just turn dogs completely inside out, I think. Yeah. He didn't actually do the experiments on orphan kids, although it did involve drilling a hole in the cheeks of orphan kids and applying electric shocks to them. But that was continued by his assistant because Pavlov wanted to study the psychic secretion. He's like, wow, that's now my life's work, actually. I, I want to figure out what's up with that. So Hang on, hang on. Sorry. We, we don't need to dwell <laughs> yes. on this, but I do have to clarify. They actually did that to homeless children, drilled holes in their cheeks? Yeah, and applied electric shocks. You just brushed over that like you were talking about the sky being blue. Well, that's not what I'm talking about today. That's not, that doesn't, okay. buddy, that doesn't even make the top 10 list. Okay. Wow. It's just, yeah, we're, we're deep and heavy here in the first few minutes. All right. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I know. You, you started with the, I mean, most of them are kind of like this, but you started with a bail one. So we're, mm -hmm. we're jumping in. We're jumping in with both feet, baby. <laughs> he decides to, to start looking at this uh, psychic secretion. I'm going to keep saying that because I think that's the funniest phrase yeah. possible. He was seeing that saliva was a reflexive response, something was, that was happening automatically in response to a stimulus. Mm -hmm. But he was noticing that the stimulus that was causing it wasn't the food or the smell. So it couldn't be purely like physiological. There had to be some psychological component. So he started suggesting it was a learned response, that basically the dogs were salivating when presented with the food. Yeah. That part was innate. That part was unlearned. It was unconditional. They were going to salivate when there was food. But then they were salivating when just seeing the white lab coat of the assistant coming in because they knew that meant they were going to get food in just a second. Mm -hmm. That was the learned response. Right? Yeah. So he started investigating how these responses were learned. He started to do this series of very famous experiments. He tried to provoke a response to a previously neutral stimulus something that didn't originally cause that. So a lot of people think it was a bell. That was, that's where the bell yeah. comes from. They think that they would ring yeah. the bell. It was never a bell. Never. In the whole history of the experiments, it was never a bell. He used a metronome. What the fuck is that? A, <laughs> a metronome is one of those things that musicians use that they go tick, 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 to keep time. I'm it up. <laughs> you, you'll know when you see it. Metronome. It's a little box. It's, oh, got, okay. it's got a little stick yeah. on it and it goes tick, tick, tick. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, he never used a bell. Um, he used the metronome. Like I said, he used electric shocks. He used other stimuli. Basically, the problem with the bell is it couldn't be measured as precisely. So, you know, you do a bell, it goes ding and then it rings. Uh -huh. But he wanted to, to have it be more precise as to when the saliva started. Huh. How did the bell like enter the legend? You know, that's a really good question. I, I don't actually know. I, I think it just kind of, uh, most of psychology and most of science is kind of just a big game of telephone. And I think that's kind of what happened here is just like the, mm -hmm. the details of it got a little muddy, which, you know, that is not the most interesting detail of True. all the crap I just said. True. So, so I think that people just kind of skimmed by a part that they felt like didn't matter. Hmm. And like I said, this was extremely important in the field of behaviorism, 
in addition to forming the basis of what would become the entire behavioral psychology field, this is called classical conditioning, the thing that he is basically discovering. So creating a learned response to something is classical conditioning. And that process remains hugely important for a lot of things, basically in the whole field of psychology. Behavioral modification, uh, treatment of mental health, treating phobias, treating anxiety, treating panic. It, we use that, uh, that process a lot in treatment mm -hmm. even now. That's how it got the, the top spot, the big coveted number one, because yeah. it is the most influential. Yeah, and it's influential not just like scientifically speaking in the field of psychology, but also like you, like we talked about before, in the just the lexicon, the pop culture of everyone can name exactly. that. So it's influential in both ways. Yeah, Like you said, people know what that is, even if they don't know anything about psychology. Yep. And it's interesting too, because we know now it's not a bell, it was a metronome, but that learned response mm -hmm. that led to the dog salivating, a lot like if, you know, I, I just saw Brandon, uh, my regular sidekick host Brandon the other day, and an airplane oh. flew overhead, and then someone threw something away nearby, so he became aware of the trash can, and he just started, just, I noticed he was salivating. I said, Brandon, are you all right? He just snapped out of me, he said, I'm sorry. So, yeah, that, I understand the learned response that um, just like Pavlov's dogs learned that, Brandon learned that airplanes and trash cans means hot dogs. So, what you're saying is that Brandon has eaten hot dogs over trash cans in airports enough that he has learned a response to it. It wasn't just the one time. It's enough to learn a response. Correct. That's incredible. Subconscious, too. He didn't even know he was salivating until I told him. Yeah. <laughs> you called him out on it. So, maybe that's in the top 10 here. Oh, you guessed my number two. Oh, Brandon eating hot dogs is number two. Damn, you are killing it. So the other experiment that came to mind is it Schrodinger's cat. Ooh, that's a very good guess, but uh, that's not actually on the list. Mm, okay. It should be. It should be. You stuff a cat in a box, that's unethical, bro. Where's this list come from? I mean, whoever made this list obviously needs They're to... They're an idiot. I yeah, can confirm. Yeah, they need to reconsider. So we lost our chance to talk about a cat in a box. Yep. Okay, another psychologist name that's coming to mind is Skinner, B.F. Skinner. Oh, that's also a very... Uh, Skinner, the Skinner box was actually on the, the runner-up list. Mm. I had a few that I, I didn't put on the actual top 10, but the Skinner box is a very well-known kind of... Also in the behaviorist realm. Yes. He would basically put rats in boxes and, and figure out what they were doing. <laughs> and again, who hasn't? That's probably why it didn't right. make this top yeah. 10, because it's just so common. Right. If he had put orphans in boxes, I would put him on the top 10, but it's yeah. just rats. Yeah, big whoop. Okay, well, <laughs> I guess we can't get through this episode without bringing up Mr. Freud, listener of the show, but I'm struggling to remember a specific experiment. I'm sure he had plenty, but is a Freud experiment in the top 10? It is not, but he had some unethical moments. He, uh, his... Like his whole fucking existence? <laughs> yeah, his whole, his whole life, kind of. Uh, <laughs> we actually, mm -hmm. that was our, our episode 100, was we talked about our buddy Freud again, so that was fun to kind of revisit him. He was our very first episode that we ever talked about. But he didn't really do experiments. He wasn't really a researcher. He was a clinician. He worked with clients, so he has a lot of case studies, but he doesn't have any actual like research studies. Yeah. He, he preferred to do his experiments at home with his daughter, I think, if I recall. Uh, yeah. Unfortunately for his daughter, yes. 
Okay, but let's not open that can of worms. I'd rather we didn't, yes. I'm trying to remember famous psychologist. Carl Jung? Is that somebody? See, if I had had the, the top 10 like famous psychologists, you'd be killing it right now. But yeah, Carl Jung, I don't have him on the list as experiments either. Yeah. Do you want me to start giving you a little, a little bit of hints or do you just want to keep giving me names? <laughs> For the sake of the listeners, we might need some hints. But let me ask you something <laughs> first, though. Uh-huh. Is there any other experiments that are kind of as generally famous as Pavlov's? There are a couple that you will probably go, oh, yeah, I've heard about that. So give me a hint. I'm one of those. Okay. There's one including giving shocks to someone. Does that Mm. seem familiar? Shock treatment. It's not exactly shock treatment. Is it shocks to uh, mice? No, it's a person. Ah, fuck. Mm Mm-hmm. This one is uh, The Obedience Experiments of Stanley Milgram. Have you ever heard of Milgram? It does sound vaguely familiar, yeah. Mm -hmm. Some background for the obedience experiments themselves. Have you heard of the Nuremberg Trials? Yes, of course. What are the Nuremberg Trials? I want to say that was like a war crimes, right? After World yeah, War II? Yeah, man. Yes. Yeah, okay. for World War II, it was uh, trials for, for the oh. war criminals that had been doing the yes. stuff. Yes, how could I not bring up the Nazis yet? Okay, okay. <laughs> I the understand. Nazis, how could the Nazis not be number one? Actually, they truly did some fucked up stuff in their, oh, yeah. uh, in their little Nazi laboratories. <laughs> But the war crime trials were basically these people who were on trial saying the atrocities that they did was just because they were following orders. Yeah. And Stanley Milgram, a psychologist from Yale, basically wanted to discover if that was possible, if it was at all possible that these people could have been doing these awful things just because someone told them to do it. So only three months after the trials in 1961, he decided to test it. He selected participants by newspaper advertising for male participants to take part in a study on learning. That's all he said. (laughs) (laughs) Just learning. Yeah. Well, first of all, you're not going to attract anybody by promising learning. (laughs) They're like, "Uh, no, money, actually. Can you pay us? And he's like, no, you'll just learn. No, he he got 40 males between ages 20 and 50. Their jobs range from unskilled to professional, so he got a good range there. So they come in to meet another participant that they'll be paired with. But this participant that they are meeting is a confederate. And that means that it is someone who is on the study who is pretending to be a participant, basically. Hmm. So this person is involved. So they drew lots to find out who would be the learner and who would be the teacher. But the draw was fixed so that the participant was always the teacher and the learner was the confederate. But the learner was Mr. Wallace, uh, who, for all intents and purposes, looks like an absolutely lovely little fellow. He has suspenders in the pictures. Here, I have a picture. I don't know. know. Here, I'll I'll throw this in the chat. Okay. I'll share it in the show notes. That's uh, Mr. Wallace. When you say Wallace, I'm thinking of Wallace of Wallace and Gromit, which is also a cute little man. He is kind of a cute little Wallace man. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He looks he delightful, doesn't he? He's getting hooked up he? to something that looks like it could be the last thing he ever does. But... Well, maybe it is. <laughs> oh, is it? A spoiler. Yes, he's getting hooked up to this, uh, this machine with these electrodes. It's Mr. Wallace, and he is the learner. And then the teacher, who is the participant in the study, mm-hmm. basically, the person who has come in that they are studying. 
There's also an experimenter who is dressed in a gray lab coat. This wasn't Milgram himself. It was also played by an actor, so someone acting in the study. But they basically used two rooms. In one was the experimenter and the participant. In another was Mr. Wallace being strapped into this chair that you are seeing in the picture. It was a chair with electrodes, um, and it was hooked up to this electricity box that went into the other room where the participant was, where there was a control panel. So on the control panel, there was like a, a scale of voltages. The voltage level started out at 30 volts and increased in 15 volt increments up to a maximum of 450 volts. Jesus Christ. The switches were also labeled with phrases that kind of said how intense they were. So it went from slight shock to medium shock to danger, severe shock. And the maximum shock level was simply labeled with XXX. Don't press that one, please. (laughs) Don't don't do that one. They're like, hey, this one's bad. And uh, (laughs) why do we have a button, period, that has that? (laughs) Who put that lever there? (laughs) Whose idea was this? So uh... the learner, so Mr. Wallace, was given a list of words to learn. And the teacher, the participant, would give a word and ask Mr. Wallace to give its pair word. From the room that the participant was in, they couldn't see Mr. Wallace. They had like radios hooked up so they could hear what he was saying. So that's how they were doing this study. And they were instructed that if Mr. Wallace got a word wrong, they were supposed to give him a shock. So they would give this word and then they would give four options of its pair word. And if he got it wrong, they gave him a shock in increasing intervals. So... Hmm. Mr. Wallace was mainly giving wrong answers. He gave mostly wrong answers. There were a lot of opportunities for shocks here. The shocks were fake, but the participant didn't Uh. know that. The participant truly believed they were delivering these shocks to this nice suspender-wearing man that they had just met in the (laughs) other room. (laughs) So they're sitting in this room thinking they're shocking this poor man. So he's acting like he's being shocked, right? Yeah, yeah, okay. they had, um, so they had pre-recorded responses. He, he had pre-recorded them. So, so after every shock, each participant would get the same response from him, yeah, basically, because yeah. they were pre-recorded. As the voltage increased, the responses that they were getting also increased. They were getting protests. At one point, he was banging on the wall that separated him from their room. Mm. He talked about having a heart condition. And after every shock, like I said, it was standard reply because there were recordings. And when they reached the highest voltage, the learner went completely quiet. Oh, my God. He didn't say anything. So these people believed that they They had killed killed, (laughs) killed this man. Yeah. If at any point in, in the experiment, the teacher indicated that they wanted to stop the experimenter. So this person who was also in the room, who, again, was wearing this white lab coat would give specific verbal prods there were four of them and they were in a specific order they had to use like like prod two could only be used if prod one didn't work so in order they said please continue the experiment requires that you continue it is absolutely essential that you continue and you have no other choice you must go on which our listeners are currently going through that same list of choices as they listen right now it's like the five stages of grief. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. This is what we are saying implicitly to all the people listening to this episode. 
if after all four of the prods were used, the subject was still like, no, I don't want to do it, then the experiment actually would be stopped. And I would like you to guess how many of these people followed through on the orders that they were being given to increasingly shock this guy. Was there any promise to like incentive to continue? Yeah, the joy of learning, Nick. The joy of learning. What else of do you need? God, no, if, they if, weren't being paid or anything. They, they were just volunteering for a study. I could be completely off on this, but I'm going to guess that most of them went through with it the whole way. <laughs> You'd be right, man. Yeah. So before starting the experiment, Milgram himself polled senior psych majors in, in Yale, as well as his colleagues, about what they thought would happen. And the general consensus was that a very small fraction of the people, like up to 30%, I think was the top guess, would be prepared to inflict the highest voltage. In actuality, 65%, so two-thirds, went to the highest voltage, uh. and virtually all of them continued to 300 volts. So you're probably getting to this, but what the explanation for that in your mind? I think, and this was included in the study as well, but it's the basically authority that the experimenter Mm. was giving. So it's the white lab coat syndrome, basically, where they are in this situation. It's a pressured situation. And Mm -hmm. they truly think, I mean, they are being literally told you have no choice but to go on. Right. So I think a lot of people just truly didn't think it's kind of that when you're when you're under panic and you're kind of in shock and you're just going along with it. That makes sense. Yeah. Does it? Does it make sense? Well, it makes sense in that it's, I mean, I don't know. You sum it up with people suck. I don't know. And these are all like almost all the ones on the list are very interesting in that we all sitting at home think, oh, my God, if I were in that situation, that's not what I would do. And here's what I would do. And of course I would leave. But we don't know. We don't know what we would do if we were actually faced with that. So it's it is scary to think about like, man, how could all of the people go through to that extent and such a high level go through all the way to the point where they thought they killed this man. Mm-hmm. And that's where the unethical part of it comes in, is that they were led to believe they had killed the person and that that's a little bit traumatic, just a skosh. Man. And generally, we frown upon that when it comes to research. I'd like to be in the room during that part of it, just to kind of observe the reactions of the shockers as they were. Right. The participants. The whole point of the experiment, I think, was to kind of show this or to prove or disprove how far people would go when they're being given orders. Right. I think Milgram went into it thinking that he would be disproving the obedience thing. Because, I mean, the the whole reason was he looked at the Nuremberg trials and basically went, these people are bullshitting. There is no way that they could do those kind of things simply because a superior person told them to. And yet he got these people into, into a room. And I mean, these are just people who are only interacting with the study and with the with this one instance, whereas the yeah. people in the army were in the army. They were, you know, trained to be obedient. And so that's even adds a whole different. And we're layer talking to it. like the Holocaust, the concentration camps, like the horrible yeah. atrocities that happened there. Yeah. Yeah. These awful, awful things that, again, we look at that and go. It is unbelievable, like they are so bad that our brain has trouble wrapping around them. And Mm -hmm. it turns out people will just shock a guy to death if someone in a lab coat asks semi-nicely. Like if you think that's what you're supposed to do at that moment. (laughs) Exactly. That is so fascinating. 
Hmm. I think those people had trust in those researchers. Like you go in and you're like, these people know what they're doing, right? And no, they don't. Yeah. But I, again, it kind of comes with this like, this person's wearing a lab coat. They must be very smart. And I think it's also probably a little bit of whatever happens to this guy being shocked is not on me. Mm-hmm. It's on them. They're the ones running the experiment. They know ding, what's going Ding, ding, ding. Yeah. yeah. Again, it, it, like, and that straight up goes back to the Nuremberg trials too. It's just people passing the buck and saying, well, I was just following orders. But if you're the one pulling the switch, what's your actual responsibility in that? Yeah. I also noticed that you gave me a ding, 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 like a bell being rung for a <gasps> dog to salivate. Are you salivating now? Are you hoping <laughs> for a little dog food? Yeah. Dog food. <laughs> precisely dog food I'm hoping for. Yes. <laughs> Your favorite snack, dog food. <laughs> Anna, I did miss what number this was on the list. Milgram's experiment. Oh, uh, Milgram, I put it number two. Mm, okay. Because I figure if you think you killed someone, that's got to be pretty bad. The next one on the list, number three, is very similar in terms of like, how far would someone go when asked to do something? Hmm. Hmm. Well, uh, I don't know if this is the one you're hinting at there, but is the Stanford prison experiment in the top? Ooh, very good. Clap, clap, clap for Nick. (laughs) That's not actually number three, but it's number five. Aha, I knew it. Yeah, it was right on there. You were just saving it. The Stanford prison study is indeed number five. I love this one. This one's insane. (laughs) Yeah. It's very fun. It was conducted uh, as a social psychology experiment in August 1971. It was conducted by Philip Zimbardo, who was a psychology professor oh at Stanford. God. What? Do you know how much fucking nostalgia just rushed through my brain when you brought up the name Zimbardo? <laughs> like, I remember watching his shitty videos in high school psychology class. Oh my God, really? Yeah. And he was like 80, but he had so much face work done that he, you know, looked like 60. <laughs> Oh, that's horrifying. Yeah. Yeah, no, Man. he's like, he was super, <laughs> he's my arch nemesis, Phillips and Barry. I haven't thought about that guy in 15 years, but yeah, so sorry. I had a visceral reaction to his name. Like this, the Stanford Prison Experiment was kind of his baby. Like he mm. has based his entire career on talking about basically the Stanford Prison Experiment. But what he wanted to study was he wanted to study disorientation depersonalization and de-individuation of subjects. That was a lot of big words. You still with me? I'm, I'm with you. Okay. So he found these volunteers, again, through a newspaper ad, because that was just how people found volunteers for studies, is the newspaper. Over 70 people responded, and they were given psychological tests. The ones who were deemed psychologically stable were picked. This excluded people with criminal backgrounds, medical problems, or psychological impairment so they wanted to start with people who seemed on the level you know yeah on the level yes (laughs) as on the level as you can be when you're um (laughs) responding to a psychology study did they promise something more than learning in this case they did this time yeah they incentivized them so for the 24 people who they eventually landed on as the people they would use they agreed to a two-week study for 15 dollars a day in 2018 money, that's about $100. So, Not bad. Eh, yeah, for, for two weeks during a summer, sure. A little extra cash. Yeah. The 24 were split into guards and prisoners. There were mm-hmm. nine of each with three alternatives, which turned out to be a good idea because of the nature of the thing. But they were split by random selection, which was just a coin flip. 
That's science, baby. So you were either a prisoner or a guard. <laughs> the prisoners were actually arrested <laughs> to come to the study. They went to the houses of the people who had volunteered for the study and arrested them to bring them to the study. Did these people know this was part of the study or did they think they were yeah. really being arrested? Okay. No, <laughs> they knew that it was part of it. But it was to get from the get-go, they wanted to put them in the mindset of right, being right. an actual prisoner. And they brought them to the prison, quote-unquote, which was the bottom of the psychology building at Stanford, where they had blocked off one hallway and put bars on the doors. So <laughs> yeah. they just made their own little prison. Yeah. Nice little weekend project for any dads <laughs> listening out there. Exactly. And yeah, they're like, Philip, do you want to go grab some drinks? And he's like, no, I got to work on my prison, actually. <laughs> I got to work. I got to renovate the basement. They wanted to, again, start them off very quickly, kind of putting them in their roles. The guards were dressed in uniforms. They wore sunglasses. They had batons. The prisoners were given these big smocks with numbers sewn on them. They had ankle chains oh, baby. to kind of like increase the oppressiveness. Yeah, it was very kinky down there. They had stocking caps instead of shaving heads like you would do in prison. Oh, uh, yeah. They wanted to just really quickly simulate the minimizing of individuality. Mm -hmm. So like I said, de-individuation is one of the things they were studying. Individuation is basically the process of us forming a stable personality and our own individual sense of self. So they brought these people in and as quickly as they could stripped that individuality away from them. Mm. The guards only called the prisoners by their numbers. They frequently made the prisoners do roll calls with their numbers to enforce that those were their names. They were stripped. They were deloused. Wow. While they were in there, there was no clock. So there was a bunch of time disorientation. It was, I mean, from the get-go, this was very intense. Yeah. And then things got worse, as they so frequently do. Mm -hmm. Several of the guards from the get-go, got into their roles a little too much. They were having a little too much fun. They were basically told they could do anything except physically harm the prisoners, but anything else basically to keep law and order. They quickly resorted to punishing prisoners with push-ups, using degrading language, just kind of going on these power trips. And even on the first day, there was a power struggle. The prisoners were not taking things seriously. It, it wasn't super eventful. They were just kind of pushing back a little bit. But even by the second day, there was like a huge rebellion. There was a, a prison uprising. Oh, my God. The prisoners barricaded themselves into cells. <laughs> uh, eventually, the guards got in. This is the second day of a two-week yeah. study. And... They stripped the prisoners. They took their beds as punishment. They even set up what was called a privilege cell. So the prisoners who didn't participate in the rebellion were put in the privilege cell and they got like beds and they got clothes. And they wow. so they they started to like so mistrust among the prisoners anyway. Yeah. After 35 hours, one of the prisoners went, as Zimbardo described, crazy and uh, was screaming, cursing. They released him. And that's why they had the alternates. So when they uh, made the groups originally, they had nine of each and then three alternates for exactly that situation. If one mm. person got out, they could bring another one in. But over the next several days, the guards continued to harass the prisoners. The sanitary conditions got very gross. There yeah. were buckets in the cells. Basically, things just got worse and worse. And the prisoners 
really started to internalize things. At one point, a prisoner was asked if he would give up his payment for quote-unquote parole, and he said yes. So he said that he would not be paid for the study if he could leave early, but he didn't quit. He could have just quit the study. No one actually right. said, I don't want to do this He's anymore. not actually in prison. Right. Yeah. But they had had it so in their heads. Again, it kind of goes back to the, the Milgram thing that we just talked about of like, when you're put in this situation and this role is reinforced and reinforced and reinforced, right, right. it gets in your head. Maybe you'll get to this. I don't know. But there has to be some long-term traumatic, emotionally damaging aspects of the study for the prisoners. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't, I didn't look at like if there was follow-up. I'm sure, I'm sure Zimbardo did some follow-up on the people because he <laughs> based his whole life around this, basically. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I think that there, I mean, again, we go back to the theory that these people were the ones that had been picked as stable people, like psychologically mm -hmm. stable people. They didn't have backgrounds in criminal history. They didn't have, like, as far as the researchers knew, any history of, like, violence or going way too far and all of them did somehow so i think that's really gotta mess with your sense of who you are Absolutely. as to like how could i let myself do that just because someone gave me a baton and a hat yeah but to be fair baton and a hat pretty cool right? <laughs> i was gonna say it's not even <laughs> considering the actual uniform i mean hey if someone gave me a uniform and a baton I mean, it'd be pretty tempting. No, I probably wouldn't abuse anyone. Probably. Mm, probably. But again, who knows? Do you think you'd ever participate in a study like this? Or, or say you don't even know if the study will end up like this. Like, you don't know what the study is. You just see an ad and you respond. You, are you the type of personality that you would do that, you think? Mm, that's really interesting. I would. <laughs> I think probably, yeah. But just yeah. because I'm curious as to what it would be. But again, like studies like this one were so influential that they created. And when I talk about ethics, one of the things that we have in research now in psychology is something called informed consent, which is basically if someone's going to be in a study, you need to properly tell them what the study is. Mm. Or at least if they're in some studies, you know, you kind of have to be a little secretive because you don't want to play your whole hand because then the participants in the study might intentionally try to go toward one result or another. But you have to then debrief them afterwards. And like that didn't happen in this one. There wasn't like a, a debriefing of these people afterwards. They just kind of got let go and were like, oh, OK, you're not prisoners anymore. Go back to your regular lives. Yeah. And like, do you think the ethics board was around to approve the uh, arresting, you know, the, the pseudo arresting <laughs> of the prisoners? Oh, I don't think the ethics board is around for any part of this. But yes. <laughs> I looked, I I looked up Zimbardo on Wikipedia and the very first sentence, it says, he became known for his 1971 Stanford prison experiment, which was later severely criticized for both <laughs> ethical and scientific reasons. It's like the yeah, first man. sentence on Wikipedia. When I talked about this when we did our episode on this, where it's like barely a study. When we think of a study, you do, there's got to be a control group. There's got to be, this was just throwing a bunch of dudes in a basement mm -hmm. and seeing what happened. I mean, I guess that's a study. Yeah. What, what was his ultimate end game with this study? Like, what was he trying to find? That's kind of another reason it's not really a study is because it's not like there was a, this is my hypothesis. It's just yeah. like, I wonder what will happen. Huh. Hmm. This is curious. <laughs> Let's throw these dudes in here and see what happens. And <laughs> it sounds just like them. 
That is exactly what a Philip Zimbardo sounds like. And he can come fight me if he thinks that's wrong. And by the way, his ass is still alive and he has not aged gracefully. I'm just saying that. <laughs> How old is he? He's got to be 90-something. He's 89. 89. 89. I'd still fight him. <laughs> fight him. <laughs> I'm not going to pull any punches just because he's old. If you end up fighting Phil Sabardo, please call me and let me know when, where. Oh, you'll have front row tickets. <laughs> oh, if I end up fighting Philip Zimbardo, I'm selling seats. We're renting out an arena. It's happening. Battle of the brains. For, well, for the listeners, uh, but you just compared your brain to Phil Zimbardo, by the way. Uh, but for the listeners, uh, I'm going to put a Horrifying. link to Mr. Zimbardo's photo. If you want to see what mm-hmm. he looks like in the show notes. Anna's arch enemy. All right. Well, is there anything else you want to cover on the Stanford prison experiment? The conclusions were not nearly worth what those people went through. He basically said the reactions of the subjects were due to the environment, not personality traits. That's all he got for us after all that. I don't know, Phil. Turns out if you put people in a basement and you say, be mean to other people, they will be mean to other people. Who knew? Yeah, you're right. In that way, it is a lot like the Milgram shock obedience study. Right, right. Again, it's kind of this question of like, what would people do when put in a situation that is kind of weird? Yeah. And it turns out the answer is weird things. And going back to the theme of this list, it's weird. It's a weird study. It is weird. Yeah. Yeah. So that was uh, was number five, Zimbardo's prison experiment. So we have that at five, Milgram shock obedience at two, and the Pavlov Mm -hmm. dogs at number one. Hmm. I'm probably going to need another hint. Okay. Have you heard anything about monkeys? You know what a monkey is? Oh, is it the one with the mommy monkey and the baby monkey? Yeah. Mommy monkey, baby monkey. They put a doll monkey with the baby and it loved the... You know what I'm trying to say, right? <laughs> it loved Something the doll like that. mommy. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Harlow's monkey experiments are number four on the list. Yes. Harry Harlow was an American psychologist who got a PhD a in psychology because he was originally an English major, but his grades were too bad. So that's who we're starting with with this, uh, with this experiment. <laughs> I can relate to that. He took a professorship at a university. He couldn't persuade the university overlords to give him a proper workshop. So he rented a vacant building down the street and made his own. Gosh darn it. He just made his own laboratory because this was the 60s and that's the Wild West of psychology. (laughs) Yeah, it seems like it. So Harry Harlow. He began the first primate laboratory. He started studying learning and cognition in primates. He started a breeding colony of rhesus macaque monkeys. Nicholas, I I want you to look at this monkey. I want you to look at how cute this monkey is. Believe me, when you said Harlow monkey experiment, first thing I did was I got to see these monkeys. (laughs) And I am glad I looked because this goddamn monkey... It's making all this weird shit worth it. They are the cutest monkeys in the whole world, and I want to hug all of them. This monkey is hugging a robotic-looking mommy monkey, and it has the most innocent little look on its face. He's so small, and they're all so innocent, and I'm so mad at Harry Harlow. It's okay. (laughs) I'm not going to cry about monkeys. Not again. Not again, Anna. I'm not a fan of experiments with monkeys. Dude, well, and see, the problem is, like, especially rhesus monkeys are really 
physiologically and anatomically similar to humans, and that's why they're used in science. I think them being freaking adorable is just uh, an unfortunate mm. byproduct. Yeah. So he made this breeding colony of these monkeys, these adorable monkeys, so he could make more adorable monkeys. That's bad enough, but to study what he wanted to study, he had to seclude the monkeys from their moms. And he started to notice that the monkeys in the nursery acted very differently than the monkeys that were allowed to be raised by their actual moms. They had social deficits. They were reclusive. They clung to their cloth diapers for comfort. I'm not making that up. I mean, these monkeys are babies. They need to be raised by somebody, right? Is there, are they just all to fend for themselves? They're being raised by the researchers. They wanted to study the learning in a more controlled environment, so that's why they pulled them away from the mothers. But, I mean, that was leading to these host of other issues because they weren't yeah. being taught monkey things. <laughs> and we all know how valuable monkey things being taught are. <laughs> if you haven't taken monkey things 101 in college, you're missing out. <laughs> But he basically saw that these monkeys were distressed by not having moms and sure. he wanted to study love and attachment. And this was not a new thing to study. It was called maternal deprivation. And it was already a point of contention kind of in the scientific community, especially with behaviorists and experts in child development and attachment. Uh, they were basically like, this is not a great thing to do. And Harry was like, I can't hear you. I have yeah. monkeys and I'm going to do what I want. So he began to introduce these. I'm telling you, there's just no, there's no regulations for these people. No. They could do whatever they want. Yeah. He began to introduce surrogate mothers to the monkeys. And like you said, so one of them was wood. Oh, I think they just started with a wire and wood one. And they yeah. had like faces on them. They made them look like monkeys, sort of. But the monkeys that were given these wire monkeys began to know them. They began to think of them as their mothers. Mm -hmm. They could recognize the faces of the wire mothers that they had been introduced to. So they developed an attachment to these very quick. And then for the next phase, he wanted to see if monkeys preferred wire mothers or mothers covered in cloth. And he used two conditions. So for the first condition, the monkey was given both the wire mother and the cloth mother, and the cloth mother had a bottle attached to it. On the mm. second condition, the wire mother had the bottle and the cloth mother was just there hanging out. Overwhelmingly, the monkeys preferred the cloth mother. Even when the wire mother was the one with the bottle, the monkeys would like go to the wire mom for food and like eat and then go right back to the cloth mom. To cuddle with it, basically, right? Absolutely. Yeah, they wanted that yeah. comfort. And so obviously this wasn't enough. No, no, no. It kept escalating. So next were the fear tests. Ugh. I know. I know, right? Imagine the kind of person you have to be to look at this monkey. Nick, Nick, look at that monkey. I want you to pull up that monkey photo again. I'm looking and look, at the, I've been looking this whole time at the monkey. Look this monkey in the eyes and decide that you want to put it through a fear test. No. Yikes. I'm really mad at Harry Harlow. Harry? <laughs> Harry, we're talking to you, man. <laughs> this is part of what was called the open field tests which was basically they gave the monkey an open, open area and they had a, its two lesbian moms, I guess. What? Wire and oh. cloth raised by lesbian moms. <sighs> Not your best work. <laughs> um, if the surrogate mom was there, the monkey would like go explore, like kind of look around the area and then go back to the mom for comfort. 
And this is an important part of attachment psychology where we use our parents as a stable base to go exploring from. So we have to know that we have a stable person to come back to, and that gives us the uh, basically the courage to like go explore a new environment. And the monkeys mm. were doing that. If the surrogate mom was there, the monkeys were doing that. Yeah. If the mom was not there, the monkey didn't explore at all. They would just stay in a ball and suck their thumb. Oh. Isn't that the sound? That's so sad. I know. So that's the open field. And then the fear test itself is just what it sounds like. The monkeys were given a fearful stimulus. Usually this was a noise-making teddy bear, which doesn't sound super scary, but these were traumatized little monkeys and everything is Mm. scary. Yeah. Without the mom, they just cowered. They avoided the thing. With mom, they were still scared, but there was less of that fear response and they would actually go like investigate the thing and then come back. Basically, it showed that these monkeys use their surrogate moms as that base for exploration that I said, and that source of comfort and even protection against scary stuff. Even though they knew that this wasn't a living being, they still got that sense of comfort from it. This all just seems like you're saying all this. (laughs) This is making you sad. (laughs) I'm so sorry. (laughs) You're saying all this, and I'm like, okay, so he learned this thing about like the stable base for exploring, but Mm -hmm. ultimately, this all just seems so entirely unnecessary. Like, did we need to know right. that monkeys would feel more comfortable with a pretend mommy when you could have just this whole time left them with their real mommy and they would have been even more comfortable? Yeah. The monkeys that even, like, weren't babies were traumatized. They didn't like Harry. <laughs> I don't think the monkeys like this dude at all. No, and neither do I. This right. all just seems like, what are you proving here that's worth any, I don't know, just weird. And that's a common theme like we just talked about in the prison experiment yeah. where it's like, okay, the results, yeah, okay, that's, I guess, an interesting result, but is it worth it? Is it worth what we did for it? No. It seems a little underwhelming considering what these people and these monkeys have to go through. It's a great way to put it, underwhelming. Yeah. That's basically the wire mother, but there's, Harry did a lot of other very upsetting things with monkeys. He had something called a pit of despair oh, no. where he would throw monkeys in there for up to a year after they were born to study what isolation did. Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> oh. No, and the pit of despair is not my name for it. It's what Harry called it. <laughs> he called it the pit of despair and didn't think that was fucked up. Or maybe he did. Maybe he loved that. Well, maybe clearly, that was just his thing. Yeah. He's just bad at naming things. He had a forced mating device called a rape rack. Wait, what? Yeah, because the, the monkeys that were in the breeding colony wouldn't, like, wouldn't be interested in sex because they were in a breeding colony. But So he had to create a device to force mating on them, uh, and he called it a rape rack. God damn. I, I can't talk about this guy anymore. I'm getting upset. <laughs> okay, that's good because that's all I have about him. I don't want to talk about him either. Yeah, Harry, I'll also fight him. I'll fight oh, everyone fight on this him. list. That's not You're going to have a tournament. Start with Zimbardo. When you get yeah. done with Zimbardo, <laughs> move to Harry Harlow. Yeah. Actually, the way that I uh, numbered this list is just from one to 10 of psychologists I want to fight. <laughs> people I just want to like throw hands at. Yeah. And I'm not a, a fighting type, but I want to fight Harry Harlow for sure. <laughs> Right? Yeah. All it takes is a picture of a cute monkey, and then you're like, the, uh, Harry Harlow threw this monkey in a pit for a year, and you're like, oh, I'll kill him. <laughs> yeah. I'll take him out. Well, it's like, 
if the same experiments was being done with people, I'd still be upset, but probably not as upset. I mean, yeah. Yeah. And I do have a confession to make. Uh-huh. You know, we were talking earlier about how I wouldn't want to podcast with my mom like you do. Mm-hmm. And the reason is because my mom is a wire cloth <laughs> monkey <laughs> robot. Oh, so, so she wouldn't be very good at podcasting is what you're saying. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, in fairness, if my mom can be a podcaster, probably even a wire mom can be a podcaster Whoa. because... you hear that, Bonnie? Mom didn't know what podcasts were before we recorded our first episode. <laughs> <laughs> and now look at her, 100 episodes later. I know. She's a podcast expert. I've got four out of ten here. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, then give me a hint for one of the mm. six through ten. Here, we'll do a little bit of a palate cleanser after, because I know the monkey one's kind of upsetting. Yes. We'll go all the way down on the list to one that's not very upsetting at all. It's just a little, it's just a little weird. Have you ever heard of the ash conformity study? That does not sound familiar. Okay. So I'm going to give you another picture here. Okay. Would you explain to our lovely listeners at home what you're Mm -hmm. looking at on that picture? Huh. Okay. So it's two door-shaped rectangles, like tall rectangles. Mm-hmm. And on the left one is just a solid black line, kind of looks like a domino almost. Mm-hmm. And the one on the right is three black lines, A, B, and C. Yes. What is this? So the, the lines on the right, the three lines on the right are various, uh, various lengths, correct? Correct. Yes. Which of the lines on the right would you say matches the line on the left? Uh, at a glance, it looks like C, line C, matches the one on the left. Okay. What if I told you it was A? I'm looking close. I don't see how that's possible. <laughs> okay. So you wouldn't believe me? What if seven people told you it was A? Oh, I get what's happening here. <laughs> yeah. I still wouldn't believe you. <laughs> I mean, I probably okay, would. Okay, really? <laughs> You'd stick with your guns, huh? Again, again, it's like, well, what would I do in this? Uh, So in 1951, social psychologist Solomon Ash wanted to see whether people would yield or resist a majority when given something that seemed very clear and how that would kind of affect their reactions and their opinions. So he gathered groups of eight students who would participate in a perceptual task where they had to look at the picture that I just showed you and Mm -hmm. say which of the three lines was the same length as the first line. So basically exactly what you just did. In reality, it was one participant in a room with seven confederates. So again, seven people who were part of the study and one person who was actual, uh, actually participating mm-hmm. who thought these people were uh, fellow participants. Right. All the Confederates say the wrong answer. So by the time it gets to the actual participant, they have to say what they think the right answer is when faced with these seven people saying what looks clearly to be the wrong thing. Yeah. Now, there were 18 trials in how many of them do you think people gave the wrong answer that they followed what the other people had said? I'm going to guess 100%. Not quite that high. It was only 12 out of 18, but that was still pretty high. That's high. 67%. So still pretty good. Yeah. Higher than I think I would have expected. But again, it comes back to this, just the feeling of pressure. And I think being in a situation where you feel pressured to answer quickly or respond quickly, it takes away that like rationing it out. Yeah. And also it kind of goes to uh, this experiment 
goes a lot to the social psychology of like mob mentality, herd mentality, and just kind of wanting to be a part of the group. So like I said, this is not too crazy of a study, but it is oft-cited. Like people reference this study a lot. As we talked about it, I remember covering it in high school too, is... Yeah, it's interesting. And everyone should look up the image. Again, I'll put it in the show notes. It's the Ash Conformity Experiment. Man, your high school psychology class sounds like it was kick-ass, dude. It sounds like you yeah, covered some good stuff. We covered a lot of this stuff in there, but you know, I haven't thought about it since high school. But when you bring it up, right. I remember. But Zimbardo was a, was a wild trip back. Because <laughs> we used to make fun sure. of that guy all the time because his videos were so awful and he was so awkward. Anyway, a <laughs> uh, hell of an ass on him though. I will say that. That's why all those people followed him. That's why they all... <laughs> someone comes in a room, even if they're wearing a lab coat, if they have a good ass, you will do anything they tell you to oh, do. Oh, yeah. You don't have to tell me. I know. Look at all those monkeys. <laughs> all those well-assed monkeys following that asshole. <laughs> well-assed <laughs> monkeys. No, that's a whole different breed. Well-assed monkeys. But yeah, this ash conformity experiment is interesting because I have to think, you know, if I was sitting in a room and seven people before me all said the same answer, A... Even though when you look at what, uh, when I look at it, like, clearly that's not right. When it gets to me, I'm going to think, well, maybe it's the angle I'm, you know, right. I'm going to feel pressured. It's gaslighting, but yes. in like a yes. scientifically approved format. These people have got to be like, am I going crazy? Mm -hmm. I, like, it's clearly C. Am I losing my mind? Yeah, totally. You got to question yourself a little bit. Like, sure. man, I really thought it was that one. Yeah, totally. I could see how it, it's a good little mind fuck. Mm-hmm. A good little mindfuck indeed. Yeah. That was my nickname in high school. <laughs> a good little okay. mindfuck. Yeah. <laughs> I'll have to verify that with Bonnie. <laughs> that was her nickname in high school. What number was this? Uh, that was 10. 10. Just because it wasn't, it wasn't too weird. So why don't we uh, talk about number nine next? What can you tell me about nine, hint-wise? Number nine. So number nine is the robber's cave experiment. Have you heard of that one? Mm. Mm, maybe, but n I don't remember if so. Yeah, this was actually one that I hadn't heard a lot about before I started kind of diving into this research too. So it, it's not one of the ones kind of like you were talking about, like how many of these are in like the cultural consciousness. Sure. I think this one's not as well known. It's kind of the real life Lord of the Flies though, is, is kind of the conceit behind it. I'm intrigued. In the mid-1950s, uh, Muzaffar Sharif and his colleagues from the University of Oklahoma aimed Hello. to study intergroup conflict and cooperation. Hello? I'm recording to you now from Oklahoma. Oh, you were just helloing a fellow Oklahoman? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's uh, okay. when you said Robber's Cave, I'm like, man, I think Robber's Cave might be kind of close to me. And here mm -hmm. we go. It's a state park in Oklahoma, indeed. You could go, you could go visit them. The, the people are probably still there. No, they're probably not. <laughs> they're probably not. <laughs> so they selected uh, 22 boys, all white, from middle-class Protestant backgrounds with uh, two parent backgrounds as well. So they wanted to keep it really consistent as far as like where these kids came from. But then the boys were randomly divided into two groups. The researchers did try to balance the physical, mental, and social skills of the group just to, again, try to keep it consistent. Mm -hmm. But they didn't tell the groups about the other groups. They transported them separately to a Boy Scout camp that was in the Robbers Cave State Park. So this came in three phases. The phase one was the in-group formation. So for five to six days, so about a week, these boys bonded in their individual groups. They developed really strong attachments. They went through a week of like normal camp stuff like hiking, swimming, 
guys being dudes, I guess. Uh-huh, sure. <laughs> Not an outdoorsy person. I don't know what you do outside. I assume it's fun. I guess. Nah, it's not. But they were also being encouraged to bond by the camp counselors who were, you guessed it, the researchers. So again, they, they had these people who were very much encouraging them to develop these strong attachments really quickly. And it worked uh, very quickly. Group norms and cultures began to develop. Some boys developed leadership roles a little bit. The boys even named their groups. Oh, do, ooh, do you want to guess what the group names were? If you were in a group of 10 other boys, what would you name your fun group? Yeah, I, hang on. I missed the age. What is the age of these boys? I think they were like 10 to 14. I want to say 10-year-old me would probably be like, let's be something cool like like the Firebirds or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that is an awesome name. Oh, I want to be part of the Firebirds. Yeah, these guys were not nearly that creative. They were the Eagles and the Rattlers. Ooh. Yeah. Well, eagle is a bird, I guess. Eagle is a bird. <laughs> Damn, dude. And you say I'm the smart one. <laughs> so phase one, after about a week, they had really kind of grown to like their little individual groups. And then phase two was group conflict and competition. For four to five days, the groups were finally introduced to each other. First of all, they discovered the other group yeah, existed. weird. But they were pitted against each other. The researchers created conditions that were meant to build tension between them. So they had these series of competitive activities. They had baseball, tug of war, and they arranged for like trophies to be awarded on accumulated team score. They arranged for individual prizes for the winning group, like medals, but no consolation prizes were given to the losers. And this kind of further increased the tensions between the group. The Rattlers were stoked. They knew they were going to win. They were talking strategy. They were talking smack. They were bragging. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this is kind of funny. They had made a flag for their group and they hung it on the baseball pitch and basically threatened the Eagles like they would mess them up if they messed with this their flag. This so fucking lame. Let's make a flag for our group. <laughs> for our group who's like not even cool, like the Firebirds. <laughs> the Firebirds. If you were in this group, you'd be like, we don't even deserve a flag, guys. We should even have a flag. <laughs> I've been in a group of other boys many times, you know, growing up. And I can't. How many okay. You know, okay. When I was like also recently? a boy, when I was also okay. a boy, I was okay. around other boys in groups. <laughs> and I went to camp too, like every summer. And not one did a single boy <laughs> say, hey guys, how cool would it be if we made a flag? <laughs> and if they did... That boy would have gotten a swirly or a wedgie. <laughs> yeah, that boy definitely would have gotten bullied at the least. <laughs> yeah. Eventually, the tensions got high enough that this, this flag thing became, became a challenge. When the Eagles accepted by burning the flag after the oh verbal God. taunting that the teams were giving each other was not enough anymore. They burned the flag. Uh, Which is illegal in some countries. Is it? Well, it's like illegal to burn... To burn, to burn the Rattler's flag. <laughs> Maybe not their flag. <laughs> <laughs> That's a show of dominance, man. But the Rattlers, yeah. they, they struck back. The next day, they ransacked the Eagle's cabin. They overturned <laughs> beds. They stole stuff. The groups were so aggressive with each other that the researchers had to physically separate them. This is like so. an 80s like, camp comedy movie or something, you know? Or horror. <laughs> or horror, sure. It depends. Yeah. Depends on the soundtrack, I guess. 
Yeah. Their group conflict phase worked a little too well, I think. Yeah. So they went to phase three, which was conflict resolution, which lasted for another week, like six to seven days. Sharif and his colleagues tried a bunch of stuff to try to get the boys to reduce their animosity that they they had built up. So they're... (laughs) You're going to think this is really stupid. They had a bean collecting contest. Oh, my God. Have you ever done a bean collecting contest in your your camp experience? Never done any of this. That wasn't a favorite camp. You weren't setting flags on fire and collecting beans? No. Were you? You didn't get your bean collecting badge? I want to talk to these Uh, kids' parents, see what happened. (laughs) That's a good question. I I wonder how much informed consent there was to the parents like agreeing i keep waiting for the point of the whole study is it just to study like conflict yeah it was to study intergroup conflict okay okay yeah well it worked but again it's like it's this problem that i have with the other experiments too where this is not real life yeah the researchers are there encouraging them to build these bonds and making it happen faster encouraging them setting up specific situations where that tension would rise so it's not generalizable in a way that I think they wanted it to be. Right. It's like, we all know this shit already. You put people in a room right. and they're going to, I mean, I guess it like proves it, but I don't know. Is it worth it? A lot of science is like, well, we're just doing this. So we have a thing to point at and say, see, we did this study. And it says, yes, mm-hmm. even though we all already knew it, we need a thing that proves it. But at least there were no monkeys in the robber's cave experiment that I've heard so far, at least. Well, we haven't gotten to phase four. <laughs> oh, God. Just uh, there were only phase three. They figured out that the only thing that would significantly reduce the conflict was something called a superordinate goal. That was a goal that was so big, it required the groups to work together. Uh. It was something that was bigger than both of them that they had to overcome their differences to figure it out. A giant bean that they had to all work together to pick up. <laughs> they had to collect the biggest bean in the world. They had to go find it and collect it. Yeah. I uh, know. The first conflict was the water supply to the camp being cut off, and they had to figure out how to get it back up and running again. Uh. And the second conflict was the groups needing to work together to decide on a movie. <laughs> Which... Well, I go through that shit every day at home with my kids. I know. That doesn't seem like uh, too much of an insurmountable goal. <laughs> no. Sure. Well, I guess I'm a fucking psychologist too then. It worked. Yeah, you're doing a research study every time you open Netflix. <laughs> it did work. The tension on the last day of the camp was very reduced and it confirmed Sharif's what was called the realistic conflict theory, also called the realistic group conflict theory. His idea was basically that group conflict can result from competition over resources. But where the ethical concerns come in was using a bunch of kids for this who didn't know that they were in a study. (laughs) Yeah. Again, this all just seems unnecessary. Yes, exactly. Okay, so that's the the robber's cave. Yeah, I I had not heard that one. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I just need eight, seven, six, and three. That's right. Can you point me in the right direction? Have you heard anything about... Kids hitting a doll. Again, my house on a Monday afternoon, but <laughs> no. You're a researcher. That's all it takes. Does Bobo doll ring a bell? I feel like it should, but no, it does not. <laughs> no. It's called the Bobo doll experiment. 
In the 1960s, Albert Bandura and two Rosses, but I don't know their first names because Albert Bandura is the one that gets all the credit. They took 36 boys and 36 girls from the Stanford University Nursery School. That's right. Another from Stanford. Stanford. <laughs> We've got two. These kids were aged between three and six years old, so they were pretty young. They pre-tested the kiddos for aggression levels before the test even began by observing them in the nursery and judging their aggression based on a four, five-point rating scales. They grouped the kids that had similar levels of aggression, again, kind of with the Robert's Cave experiment, like trying to keep it as consistent as possible within the groups. But they, each group consisted of 12 boys and 12 girls, so 24 in all. You're welcome for that math. Thank you. And there were three groups. The three groups were exposed to, to models who acted differently. There was one group that was the control group who they didn't have anyone to model after. So no adult came in to model their behavior. And I think this might be the first experiment that I'm talking about that has a control group. <laughs> You're right. Yeah, I don't think we've talked about that yet. No. So a control group is just the, the group in the experiment that basically is not having any kind of outside influence put onto it. So the researchers can say like, okay, this is what happens when there's no variable being put on. Yeah. But this is the, like, the first experiment that I'm talking about that's using that, which is like correct experiment procedure. Yeah, ethics and standards. Yeah. Exactly. Basic experiment stuff. Yeah, this is one of the first ones that's uh, bringing it up. The control group didn't have a model. Then there was a group that was shown an aggressive model and then a group that was shown a non-aggressive model. So Bandura had some predictions about like, he thought that boys would behave more aggressively than girls. He did think that when the kids saw an adult acting aggressively, that they would be more likely to act aggressively. So again, it's, it's things that we now look at and go, yeah, duh. Yep. But Bandura was like, no, we're going to do it. Well, I so, got to say real quick, I don't know the mm -hmm. details of this experiment yet. You're about to tell me, but mm -hmm. I did look up Bobo doll experiment and I'm seeing Bobo the doll and yes, I want to hit it. I want to punch you. <laughs> you already want to hit him? Yeah. <laughs> Man, you're in the control group and you want to hit him. Okay. Okay. There's some fun pictures of, of some kids just beating ass oh, on yeah. this Bobo doll. Uh, <laughs> how you, you describe the Bobo doll. What does the Bobo doll look like? So it's, uh, we've all seen this. It's like, how do I describe it? It's like a balloon type material that stands kind of like a punching bag. And you, if you punch it at the top, it'll, it'll fall down and then bounce back up. Yeah, it's those, uh, what, there used to be a commercial, the, oh, the weebles wobble, but they don't fall down. Yeah. It's like that. Yeah. It's like a punching bag for kids, basically, but it's not mm -hmm. hanging from the ceiling like a traditional punching bag. It's on the ground. Right. And it's pretty big. It's like the size of the kids themselves. So it's, it's, they're fighting someone their own size. Yeah. And it's a picture of a clown on it. Yeah. A yeah. Clown. That is true. That is. I wonder if that, that would be an interesting experiment to see if they react differently. If it's like, what if you painted the, the face of that adorable monkey on it? Would they want to hit it then? Absolutely not. Not me, at least. But I'm not a psychopath. No, they would want to hug it yeah. and, and, and save it from Harry Harlow. So they had this inflatable doll that was kind of about their size. The experimenter then invited the adult model into the room and encouraged the model to sit at a table across the room that had kind of similar activities laid out. So they kind of mirrored it. Over 10 minutes, the adults would play with the toys. In the non-aggressive condition, they just kind of played with things and vibed for 10 minutes. But in the aggressive, they wailed on this doll. 
They would like lay it on its side. They would sit on it. They would punch it repeatedly. They would raise it up, uh, pick up a mallet and strike it in the head. Oh my God. They like repeated the sequence of the aggressive things three times and they would intersperse it with like verbally aggressive things like pow and kick him. And he sure is a tough fella. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, traditional smack talk. You know, <laughs> yeah, th- that's what I say when I'm this is that's what I'm going to say when I fight Phillips. <laughs> <laughs> he sure is a tough fella. He sure he keeps coming back for more was another thing they would say, which I guess makes sense if he's like bouncing back yeah, up. he literally right? is. So uh, after 10 minutes, the kid was taken to another room full of toys, but was only given two minutes to play. So Nick, how do you think you would feel as a four-year-old not allowed to play with a room full of fun toys? That would frustrate me for sure. Absolutely. And that was what it was meant to do. It was built to increase the frustration on these kids intentionally. So finally, the kid was taken to the last experiment room. That's right, a third room full of toys. I want to know what the budget on this study was. It's like, we just need to make three rooms full of kids' toys. This time, there was a number of aggressive toys, including a mallet, a tetherball with a face painted on it, dart guns, and of course, the Bobo doll. And there were also non-aggressive toys like crayons, paper, dolls, um, plastic animals, trucks, stuff like that. And they had 20 whole minutes in this room. Unsurprisingly, a lot of the kiddos just began to beat wholesale ass on this poor doll. <laughs> wholesale ass, yeah. <laughs> she just, just went in on it. One of the pictures I saw had one of the kids aiming a little toy gun at the Boba doll's face. Uh-huh. I see so, that. So, yeah, they were just really going for it. And the results of the experiment supported kind of what Bandura originally said. He had predicted that the children in the non-aggressive group would behave less aggressively. Yeah, great work. (laughs) Woo, a round round of applause for science, guys. Sure enough, the results indicated that children of both genders in the non-aggressive group did tend to exhibit less aggression than even the control group. So the kids that saw someone basically just chilling were more likely to be chill. Imagine that. They were correct in saying that boys would be more aggressive than girls. Boys engaged in more than twice as many acts of physical aggression than the girls. Again, this study, maybe that's because there was a control group and everything, but it did seem like it had a little bit more um, substantial results, but not necessarily surprising. Yeah, well, and <laughs> just significant. Imagine, too, this guy. What was the psychologist's name? Bindura. Okay, Bindura. He spends his whole life, he goes through, you know, however many years of school, he does all this research, and then he finally gets to his big moment, and it involves kids punching the fuck out of a clown doll. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> and that was his crowning achievement. I'll just leave it at that, I guess. Whatever floats your boat. Yeah. Whatever floats your Bobo doll. <laughs> that thing probably could float. <laughs> it looks very floatable. Bobo doll, was that number eight? Number eight. Okay, so real quick recap. We have the Solomon Ash Conformity Study at 10, mm-hmm. the Robber's Cave Experiment at 9, Bobo Doll Experiment at 8, I'm Missing 7 and 6, the Stanford Prison Study with Zimbardo is 5, the Harlow Monkey Experiment, boo, is number 4, <laughs> I'm Missing 3, number 2 is Milgram's Shock Obedience, and number 1 is Ivan Pavlov. Absolutely. Right. So do you want to do either six or seven, or do you want to go up to three that's a little more upsetting? Let's save the upsetting one for last. 
All righty. Let's go not... Uh, the, the three that are left are pretty upsetting. Right. I don't know why I oversold the other one. Yeah. You're regretting inviting me to this show. I can feel it. I can feel pretty, it. Yep. <laughs> pretty much. All right. So number seven is... It's about fear. It's about basically seeing if fear can be taught. Um, have you heard of Little Albert? Hmm. That sounds familiar, but I can't. I can't. Yeah, it'll seem familiar when I talk about it. So this was done by behaviorist John Watson, um, not the Sherlock one, whole different guy, and oh. his assistant Rosalie Rayner. Watson is actually called the father of behaviorism, um, but he was he was also known for using orphans in his experiments. That was just it's just a thing a lot of people did. Seems that way. For this particular study, they used a nine-month-old boy named Albert B. So today we know him as Little Albert. They showed him a series of stimuli, including a rabbit, a monkey, a white rat, masks, and burning newspapers. What? One of these things is not like the other. Yeah. (laughs) Well, they were trying to see what he would be scared of, and so they studied the kid's reaction. But initially, he showed no fear to any of the stimuli even the burning newspapers, I guess. Well, he's nine months old. He doesn't know what that is. I guess. Yeah, he's just like, ooh, pretty. <laughs> Obviously, the researchers looked at this and were like, this kid isn't afraid of any of these things. Let's fix that. <laughs> and sure enough, uh, next time Albert was exposed, th- so they picked the white rat. And so they would expose Albert to the white rat. And when they exposed him to it, Watson would strike a metal pipe with a hammer and make a really loud noise. The kid, being nine months old, didn't like that, and so he would cry um, because it was a loud yeah. noise. And they did this over and over. I'd probably cry too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would cry. I'm not a nine-month-old baby as far as I know. I mean, that would be news if you were to tell me right now that you're nine months old. We'd have to stop doing the podcast and just talk about that. Like, how are you talking <laughs> to me right now? I'm a nine-month-old baby. Wow. <laughs> I've got the Benjamin Button disease. But... <laughs> They did this a number of times because repetition is key to successful experimentation, don't you know? Mm. And sure enough, after repeatedly pairing the white rat with loud noises, Albert began to expect a frightening noise whenever he saw the white rat. So this, this kind of goes to the learned response thing and the mm-hmm. classical conditioning thing that Pavlov came up with. But it was kind of more generalized in just fear instead of a physiological response. Yep. Soon, he began to cry as soon as he saw the rat. Um, He would even go so far as to, I guess they put him on a table for this, because at one point it talked about, like, he saw the rat and tried to, like, jerk away and crawl away so fast that he almost fell off the table, like they had to catch him. I don't know why they wouldn't just put him on the floor. (laughs) Yeah. It's a baby. Don't put a baby on the table. This whole thing is like, why are we doing this? all of these they're like if we're gonna do something so stupid at least let's do it a little smarter right but no they just kept doing stupid things who are this kid's parents like i don't know he didn't have him he was an orphan oh orphan i forgot yeah yeah well that's why and like yeah these orphans didn't have anyone to advocate for them so it makes it even worse yeah people sad so yeah Scientists had successfully created a fear in this kid of a white rat because they had paired it with a scary stimuli. But that's not where it stopped. Albert's fear didn't end there. It started to become generalized. 
So he would get distressed at anything that looked similar to a white rat. So anything that was like white and fuzzy. So the rabbit from before that he hadn't been scared of, he was scared of it now. And someone wearing a Santa Claus mask with a fluffy white beard. Yep, that was scary to him. Like anything that seemed in the general category that looked like a white rat was terrifying because they had conditioned it to be that way. And Santa doesn't only look like a white rat. That guy is a rat breaking in your home. We should be scared of him, but that's a whole other thing. That's true. (laughs) He's right. Albert, you're right. You should say it. I don't know why we're traumatizing this kid and giving him PTSD for the rest of his life just to prove that. Right. Yeah. It's the theme of all of these. Yeah. And I do wonder how much the researchers... Like, maybe they just kind of didn't think of the long-term ramifications. Maybe they just truly didn't think, like, this will have lasting ramifications. But uh, Albert was about one year old at the end of the experiment. So this so like, a couple months. He was nine, nine months old when they started. And he reportedly left the hospital shortly after. Watson discussed what might be done to remove Albert's conditioned fears. But he didn't have time to try any of that stuff. So Albert just kind of left with that fear and pretty much continued the rest of his life. Thanks a lot, Dr. Watson. Mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah that's, uh, that's the, the little Albert study. So what have we learned? Not enough to warrant traumatizing a baby. No, it's just... But yeah. something maybe. I don't understand any of this, but... That's number seven. So I just need number six and three. And you said these are all going to be kind of disturbing. So why don't you disturb it up with uh, number six? Number six uh, involves more orphans. We haven't traumatized enough orphans yet. So let's grab some more. So number six is called, sometimes it's called a Tudor study. More widely, it is known as the monster study. Monster? (laughs) Okay, now this I got to hear. Bodes well, right? Yeah. Yeah. So in 1939, Dr. Wendell Johnson, a professor at the University of Iowa, supervised a grad student, Mary Tudor. So that's where we get the the Tudor study. She was kind Uh. of heading it to do a study on whether labeling someone as a stutterer would affect their actual speech patterns, would affect whether they have a stutter or not, basically. Side note, Johnson, so Dr. Johnson, was a stutterer as a kid. This study is coming from someone who grew up with a stutter. Yeah, why would you want to inflict that on someone else unless you're getting revenge on the world? Maybe. He was paying it forward. Yeah. (laughs) Seems sketchy anyway. As someone who's been a grad student, like if if one of my professors came to me with this study, I have no idea how Mary Tudor agreed to this. But sure, why not? Uh, She just needed that credit, baby. I can already tell this is not going to be an ethical study. Uh, how how do you how do you get that? Is it is it because it's called the monster study? Is that what's tipping you off? <laughs> uh, among other things, but I'll let you explain. <laughs> so, twenty two young children were recruited from a veterans orphanage. Oh my god! Yeah. <laughs> oh my yeah. god! To be in the study, they were split into groups. So they had eleven stutterers and eleven non stutterers. The stuttering group was told they were perfectly healthy. They didn't need speech therapy or anything. They were fine. Whereas the non-stuttering group was told the opposite, that they did need speech therapy, that they were stuttering, basically. The theory here was basically how the kids were treated would affect whether they had a stutter. Mm -hmm. And the specific goal was to try to give kids a stutter. That was the goal. Yeah, that's 
I, <laughs> someone should have put a stop to this. That's fucked up. It's messed up, right? Yeah. 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 So Mary Tudor was the one spearheading this. Like I said, she would come visit the kids. She and the staff had a mm-hmm. script that they would use with the with interacting with the kids. So for stutter free, they would say things like the staff has come to the conclusion that you have a great deal of trouble with your speech. You must try to stop yourself immediately. Do anything to stop this. Don't ever speak unless you can do it right. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. For stutterers, they said, pay no attention to what others say about your speaking ability, for undoubtedly, they do not realize that this is only a phase. This is <laughs> fucked up. And so after a month, all the kids began to like suffer in school. They began to have like pretty severe ramifications, even the ones that were like in the control groups. Because, I mean, they're, they're seeing all their like peers be basically tortured. Then <laughs> they're already orphans. So, yeah, they're not starting from a solid base here. I don't know why the orphanage signed off on this. I mean, what do they get out of it? Money, maybe. I guess, I don't maybe. Know. It wasn't. But... I assume that they were just like, sure, man, do whatever you want. <laughs> we don't yeah, care. Sounds that way. Even the ones who were getting positive reinforcement were kind of beginning to suffer like in school and stuff. And sure enough, there were very severe changes in speech. And it's not so much that they developed stuttering. It's that, like, several of them developed selective mutism. Like, they wouldn't even try to talk. They would say, um, a lot. One of them even developed, uh, she would, like, instead of talking, she would snap a couple times. And when Mary Tudor said, well, why are you snapping? She said, I'm afraid I'm going to stutter if I talk. Yeah, because of the experiment. (laughs) Exactly. They were successful, I guess, if that's what you'd call successful. Again, it wasn't really a stutter, although it was listed as five out of six of the healthy orphans developed a stutter. I don't like it. Eh. But, but again, even if that were true, which I don't think it is, like, what, what, what's the point? Why? Yeah, why are we uh, just, God, all of these make me so frustrated because, like, why are we here? What are we doing? Yeah, and, and that's what, like, we've mentioned the ethics thing a few times, but do we really need an ethics board to be like, we shouldn't torture these orphans? Yeah, what's wrong with you psychologists, Anna? That's a Why good question. Why are you question. also monstrous like this? I mean, I know a lot of counselors and they are pretty messed up. So I think it, it is something that draws us to this field. Yeah. It's maybe trying to heal ourselves. Not working. But I've never tortured orphans, so. Well, that's what someone who's tortured orphans would want us to think. That's exactly what someone who's tortured orphans would say. But why is it called the monster study? Because they were torturing orphans. That's literally why. Yeah. Mary Tudor later said that even during the study, she felt weird. She thought that Dr. Johnson should have been more involved. I assume she was just a grad student who got suckered into this and took the fall for it. She tried to follow up with the kids. She would like come back to the orphanage a couple times, but it really didn't help. And uh, children in the negative therapy group really never escaped their problems. They carried these to adulthood. They had symptoms of depression. They had lacks of confidence, especially when they were talking. In 2007, seven of the original orphans were awarded $1.2 million for lifelong emotional trauma. Good. Good. That's not enough, but yeah. That's, yeah, that's the least of what they deserve. And the study was never actually properly published because even at the time, Johnson feared that it would be likened to the numerous experiments carried out in the Nazi regime. I don't know if they're that bad, but they're pretty bad. I don't think they're that bad, but pro tip, if you think you're doing something that would be like 
mistaken for Nazi, don't do that thing. Mm-hmm. That's, that's my wise tip for the day. Advice to live by. If you look at a thing and say, would a Nazi do that? Don't do it. Hello, I sure hope you've enjoyed this episode, 172 of Tennis Podcast. And if you have enjoyed it, I hope you'll consider leaving us a nice little review on your preferred podcast app. That's what these fine folks did that I'm about to tell you about. Every week here on the show, I read reviews from listeners just like your sweet ass. And the first one I'm going to read this week comes from Danny Banani, 963 on Apple Podcasts. Miss Banani says, It's funny and educational. They keep it fresh every week. Especially love the recent serial killer episode. (laughs) So you're right. Our serial killer episodes are pretty fresh. Just like a banana, you might say. But they're also pretty rotten. Rotten to the core. Yeah, we don't love serial killers, but we do love listeners and reviews. Thank you, Danny Banani, for that. One more here comes from John on Good Pods. And he left this review right after our uh, best-selling rappers episode. Here it is, quote, Last name podcast, first name tennis. Like a sprained ankle boy, I ain't nothing to play with. Fire emoji. And John, of course, thank you for that review, John, but he's also the co-host of the Reddit on Wiki podcast, one of my personal favorites. By the way, since I'm talking about Reddit on Wiki, I'll tell you that I was recently on their Am I the Asshole series, where me, John, and the other co-hosts read from the Am I the Asshole subreddit to ponder, well, who is the asshole? You can listen to my episode on the Reddit on Wiki podcast. Look for the April 7th episode titled Am I the Asshole for Stealing My Friend's Life? And I'll put a direct link in the show notes of this episode now. But anyway, back to the reviews. John, Danny, thank you for those reviews. You're, you're too kind, you're too sweet, like a banana. And if you want me, listener, if you want me to read your review, go to Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, or the Good Pods app, write a review. I'll read it on a future episode. And by the way, one last quick call to action. If you're listening on Spotify, take five seconds, literally five seconds, to tap the star icon at the top of our Spotify page. Rate us five stars. It would mean so much to me. Thank you. All right, let's get back to my discussion with Anna. Is number three related to any of the experiments that the Nazis did? It is not. No. But this was actually pre-Milgram. It was pre-everything. This, is, this was the, the earliest study on the list. Shock therapy? No. This was, again, kind of like Robert's Cave. I, I didn't know much about it before I started, but it's messed okay. up. It's called uh, the Landis Facial Expression Experiment. In 1924, University of Minnesota psychologist Carney Landis began an experiment to study common facial expressions. Specifically, he wanted to know if everyone made the same facial expressions in response to the same emotions. Now, the problem here is how do you measure an expression? He decided to narrow his focus to the movements of the facial muscles, like when an emotion happens, to see if there was a pattern in how people's facial muscles moved. So he recruited his fellow grad students to do this. Because, again, grad students will apparently do anything. That's the takeaway. Yep. (laughs) The grad students that I've known are all just kind of on a razor's edge of sanity anyway. Like, that's just how grad school is. So, of course, they would help. Sure, why not? So, he painted standard marks on their faces here. I'm going to send you another another little picture here. So, these are some of the actual photos from the experiment. So he would paint these lines. I don't know if they're like following the muscles of the face. They're kind of following the contours of the face. 
but it was basically so when he took a picture of them, you could see more clearly like what facial expressions they were doing. No, this looks like fucking devil worship shit is what this looks like. (laughs) This reminds me of Richard Ramirez in a courtroom. Oh my God. Yeah, kind of. Maybe that's where he got it. (laughs) Not to beat a dead horse here, but the same thing we've said with all these, like, yeah, it might be mildly interesting to find an answer to this facial. Like, does everyone have the same facial expression? But ultimately, who gives a fuck? Like, leave these people alone. Well, oh God, if you're saying that now, uh, hold on to your bridges, dude. It it gets, again, it's like, at what cost? Did we really have to go this far? Nobody's asking this, but you. Who told you to do this? No one, no one. Basically, what they would do, the procedure, was that they would take pictures of the subjects while making them be exposed to different stimuli. So things started pretty harmless, as they always do. At first, Landis asked them to do some pretty mundane stuff, like listening to jazz music, smelling ammonia, reading a passage from the Bible, telling a lie. But he wasn't really getting a lot of exciting facial expressions. They were pretty tame. And he Mm -hmm. thought it was time to up the ante. So next, he showed them porn. He showed them pictures of people with skin conditions. He even fired a gun to try to capture their initial moment of fear. But this is the 20s. It's not exactly like high-speed, high-def photo technology. What an asshole. He just wanted an excuse to watch porn. Yeah. Or shoot a gun next to people's faces and laugh when they got scared. Again, for some reason, the expressions that were elicited from this still weren't enough for him. And so he raised the stakes higher. He told the subjects to stick their hands in a bucket, which ended up being full of live frogs. Ugh. And after the initial, like, shock and revulsion, they, the subjects were encouraged to continue to root around in the bucket of live frogs, really get in there, really dig in. Mm. And when they got to the bottom, they were rewarded with shocks from live electrical wires. This is... <sighs> but wait, but wait, it gets worse. Seriously, trigger warning for this one. The next phase, okay. the final phase, thank God. Landis puts a live mouse in the subject's left hand a knife in the other, and very flatly orders them to decapitate the mouse. No. You're making this up. And that's basically what most of them said. Most of them probably said, are you kidding, Carney? Because these were his grad school fellows, and they probably (laughs) knew him by his first name. Yeah, Yeah, his name is Carney. (laughs) Is that really his first name? Wow. It's it's fitting. Carney Landis. Yeah, I I guess if anyone is going to do this experiment like this, it's someone named Carney. But no, he wasn't joking. Do you know how many of them did it? I do, yes. Oh, no. But that's not all. He said, not only was he not joking, either they could cut off the mouse's head or he would do it in front of them. Understandably, these subjects were pretty upset. <laughs> the good news, the results sure became just as exciting as Landis wanted. The expressions sure were big. Yeah. The bad news was that they also became very complex. They, you know, faced in this situation of extreme stress, the participants gave a huge range of reactions. Like some of them were crying, some of them were hysterically laughing, some of them were swearing, others were just completely locked up in shock. But as for how many actually did it, how how many do you think? I don't know. It, it's kind of that authority question again, like in the Milgram right. study. And the Stanford prison study, I want to say lower though, maybe 40 to 50%. 
Okay, yeah, that's pretty close. It was two-thirds. Yeah, two-thirds of the participants ended up uh, complying with the orders, and they, they killed the mouse. Guys, this is just a random volunteer study. Why are you doing I know, right? Ah, your students volunteering for this. What are you getting out of this? Yes, just walk away. And that's not even what the experiment was about. Like, if the experiment, again, had been about more like the Milgram stuff of figuring out the obedience, that maybe would have been one thing. But that wasn't the point. The point was just to see facial expressions. Yeah. And it was worth beheading a lot of mice. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. And think about who had to go back after and clean up all the mouse heads. Oh, fucking Carney Landis comes out of the experiment room covered in blood going, I need you to go back to the pet store. And they're like, this has gone too far. No, they're like, where'd all the mouse heads go? And he's like, I don't know. And then they fall out of his pockets. <laughs> oh, no, I'm sorry. Oh, I was trying to take them home for my follow-up experiment. What a weirdo. Oh, my what God. What an asshole. I don't like this guy. Weirdo is a very good way to describe him. But even like the final third who refused to do it had to watch Landis behead it. Like, yeah. And that's terrible enough. It's terrible enough that these grad students had to watch this and have their reactions immortalized on film. But yeah. there was one participant in the study who is not a grad student. He was a 13-year-old boy who happened to be in the department oh as a patient um, because of psychological issues and high blood pressure. This couldn't have helped, honestly. Uh, no. So this poor kid had to be traumatized, and for the sake of not even that much important discovery. No, absolutely not important discovery. Oh, certainly not important enough to warrant that. No. Yeah, regardless. But even, again, like we go back to that underwhelming word. Mm -hmm. The results were basically there's no typical facial expression accompanying any emotion. Emotions are not characterized by a typical expression or recurring pattern of mus muscular behavior. Smiling was the most common reaction even during unpleasant experiences. And men were more expressive than women. That's all they got. Wow. Thanks for that, Landis. Right. Was it worth the, the mouse massacre? Was it worth it? I was wondering if I was battling depression in my life right now just because life felt so empty. But now that I know that... Landis's findings of the facial expression experiment. I feel like life has meaning and purpose again. I think yeah. I can get through I'm really, it. I'm really glad that you could find meaning in what he was doing. I think that's really important. I think that's probably why he did it. Yeah. He was like, someday a podcast host is really going <laughs> to think this is important. <laughs> uh, still not worth it. Yeah, so that's my, my, my list of top 10 uh, experimenters I want to fight. Yeah, thanks so much. That was... So much fun. I'm glad we could talk about these really happy things together. Yeah, yeah. If you were feeling bad before, now you just feel worse. You're welcome. <laughs> Thank you for that. Uh, you know, I've covered serial killers on this show, cults, all kinds of terrible things. But this has been the one that's gotten me the most frustrated, I think. And frustration is the appropriate emotion, I think. Like, like even more than like disgust or, or like shock, it's just like, how could this be allowed to happen? Mm -hmm. Like, even before ethics boards, there had to be multiple layers of people saying, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Let's do it. I mean, we were landing people on the moon around this time. Surely we were fucking smart <laughs> enough to realize like, oh, this might not be the best thing to do. But right? apparently not. Oh, it's so frustrating. But also fascinating. And, you know, as crazy and 
unbelievably unethical as some of these are and as much as they would not be allowed nowadays like uh, many of them did give us some important stuff i mean like we do have classical conditioning from all of weird pavlov dog stuff we did learn a lot from like harlow and his attachment theory and everything like that and and so so yeah i mean we do have some important findings but again it comes back to there had to be a better way to find this stuff out yeah but even more important than the findings was the fact that it provided good podcast fodder for our episode today. Yeah, the real experiment was the friends we made along the way. <laughs> Thank you. Couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> Why don't you uh, quickly take us right back through the top 10? So starting from the bottom at 10 is the Ash Conformity Study. Number nine is the Robber's Cave Experiment. Number 10 is Bandura's Bobo Doll Experiment. Number seven is the Little Albert Experiment. Number six is the Monster Study or the Tudor Study. Number five is the Stanford Prison Experiment. Number four is Harlow's Monkey Experiments. Number three is the Landis Facial Expression Experiment. Number two is the Milgram Obedience Tests. And number one is Pavlov's Dog's Classical Conditioning Experiment. Yeah, Landis, I got a facial expression for you, you fucking asshole. (laughs) I want to fight all these guys too. Right? You and me, Nick. Let's let's fight them. We'll take them all 10 at a time. Anna, as frustrating a list as this was, I think it was a lot of fun, and I sincerely appreciate you taking the time to put your notes together and all that for this. Absolutely. So thank, thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, yeah, of course. We'll have to do it again. But I can't let you go without giving you a chance one more time to plug your show, tell the listeners where to find you, any topics you have coming up that you think you want to shout out. And I know you mentioned while we were going here a few of these things you've covered on your own show already. So anything like that you want to point out, now's your time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, You can find us uh, wherever your preferred podcast listening is. Um, We're on Spotify. We're on Apple. We're on um, all that good stuff. We are Freudian Sips Pod on pretty much every social media site. We're Freudian Sips Pod on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook. So that's kind of where to find us. Our site is FreudianSipsPod.com. Um, so yeah, that's kind of where to listen to more of us. And we have talked about several of these. We've talked about uh, Harlow. We've talked about the Stanford Prison Study. We did the Monster Study. I think we did Bobo Doll at some point. Um, and, we, and we've done Pavlov as well. So yeah, we've, we've talked about several of these. We actually have several kind of wacky experiment episodes. I think we have like three or four of those. So it's interesting stuff. And, and mom and I rip on these guys just as much as we did today. <laughs> so. Yeah. And that's the beautiful thing that I want to drive home here is we just because of time and we're covering 10 things, we kind of hit the, you know, the high level talking points on each of these. Exactly. But if you want a deeper dive and get into the more nitty gritty, you should definitely check out the episodes from Freudian Sips about these. Totally. Please do. And if you want to know if you found the right podcast, just look for the image of Sigmund Freud (laughs) taking a sip from a drink. You found the right podcast there. He's taking a little sip of his wine. Usually he was a cigar guy, but he made an exception for us. Yeah. Well, anyway. Sigmund Freud also did cocaine, though. So maybe he's putting away his cocaine to have some wine instead. Yeah. But but again, who among us have? (laughs) Who, Who cast the first stone? I want to know. Listen, Anna, this has been uh, an experiment, to say the least, but it's been fun. Anything else you want to say before I uh, let you go here? No, I think, think that's it. I think I, I have um, traumatized you enough for today. My work here is done. Absolutely. Thank you for that traumatizing material. And to the listeners, <laughs> thank you for listening. 
I'll have links to Anna's show in the show notes. And until next time, I'll be back with episode 173. Next week, I'll be joined once again by the good doctor, Dr. Buster. So make sure you listen to that. I guess that's all she wrote, Anna. Bye, everybody. <laughs>